Pastor Benekai will be going uh, second, and uh, Daniel will be going third. Well, I love the words of that last song. Um, we're here tonight to celebrate the first part, um, Jesus who died to pay that debt for our sin, and we come back Sunday to celebrate the second part, who was raised uh, to give us new life. And as a church family, uh, we're finishing up the book of James, and this last part that we're going to go through tonight really fits quite well uh, for a Good Friday message. You know that even though this day commemorates our Lord's death on the cross, you know that we still call it Good Friday, right? Because by his death, he satisfied the righteous wrath of God at our sins, and he purchased our forgiveness so that we could have fellowship with God forever. None of the promises we're going to see in the book of James tonight would be for us if Jesus had not first done that. So as we look at these next few verses, let's not only learn what God has to say in them, but let's also think and ponder and meditate on how these things may also shed some light on why this day is truly so good. So let's go to the book of James and start in verse 13. And we'll just read that verse first, and then we're going to talk about it. We'll go through this verse by verse. Verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now in this verse, notice how James speaks of suffering, cheerfulness, and praise all in one breath. You know, this reminds us that for us as Christians, these things are not mutually exclusive. They can truly exist side by side. Suffering does not mean that we cannot still be cheerful, and it does not mean that we cannot still praise God. You know, Jesus was full of all of these things. The Bible says that he was a man who wept. The Bible also says that he was a man who was acquainted with grief and sorrow. But it also says that he was a man who had the fullness of joy. In fact, Hebrews 12.2 tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the torment on the cross that he went through 2,000 years or so ago this evening. And not only endured it, but despised its shame is what that verse tells us. You see, that joy set before him was the joy of doing the will of his Father, what he and the Father had planned in eternity past, which was to save us, as well as the joy of returning home to heaven, to his Father, with that mission having been accomplished. Ponder these words that we see there as we begin this chapter. Is anyone among you suffering? Because those words ought to remind us of the fact that we will all suffer. James assumes that suffering is going to go on. And Jesus promised us that the Christian life would involve suffering. And you know what, brothers and sisters? He of all people ought to know that. Because no one who was ever clothed in human flesh has ever suffered as much as he did on that first Good Friday. Hebrews 12.4 says that in his struggle against sin, he resisted to the point of shedding blood and that none of us has ever done that. The next words in our ver the first verse there say, let him pray. Well, what did Jesus do in the garden on the night he was arrested as he was suffering in contemplation of the cross? He prayed, and so should we when we suffer. Yet, on the night that Jesus was arrested, 
His disciples, like we so often do, were not so diligent to pray because the Bible says they actually slept instead. But Peter, who eventually learned the truth of that lesson, tells us in 1 Peter 5, 7, that we, as we come to God in prayer, come to Jesus in prayer, can cast all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. And we're going to have opportunities for people here tonight to do that, whether it's a healing for sickness, a spiritual issue, an emotional issue, whatever it is, to come up and cast your anxieties on Jesus. That Greek word translated as cast literally meant to pitch, like give it the old heave-ho, to just dump it on Jesus because he cares for us. So we'd encourage you to do that. Then we have verse 14. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And just like the prior verse, this one begins with an assumption. And that assumption is people are going to be sick. For it says, is anyone among you sick? And you see, we as Christians are not exempt from sickness because we live in a fallen world where there is disease and sickness. And only the return of Jesus to redeem all of creation will end that. Next, we see something that a Christian is to do if they are sick, and that is to call for the elders of the church. You see, that is an exercise of faith. And the book of James, if we remember anything from it, is all about putting our faith into action, putting it into practice. And then we see that the elders likewise are to have faith because they are to then respond to that call in faith and then pray over the sick person and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Do you know that when Jesus was on that cross on that first Good Friday, he could have cried out for legions of angels to come help him, but he didn't do so because it was the will and it was the plan of God for him to go through it in order to save us. Even his own father had to turn his back on him as he hung there bearing our sins on the cross. That is why Jesus cried out those words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But here again is why this day is so good. Jesus cried out those words so you and I would never have to. You see, the biggest torment of the cross wasn't physical. It was spiritual. Because to stand in our place and take the punishment for sin that we deserved, Jesus had to endure the pain of the separation from God the Father that we otherwise would have had to endure for all of eternity had he not saved us. Now let's consider some things about anointing with oil, for that's the next thing it tells us here. First of all, for the elders to anoint someone with oil means that they would have to touch them. Typically what we do is take a drop of oil and anoint someone on the forehead in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, if you remember, healed in many ways, and he could even heal from far away as he did with the nobleman's son, but most of the time he healed up front, close, and personal, and he did it by touching, by laying his hand on the sick person. And so as the elders are doing that, it's reminding us of that healing touch of Jesus. Jesus touched one man's eyes. He touched another man's tongue. He even touched the untouchables, lepers. And you see, this reminds us of the compassion of Jesus 
and how personal, relational, and intimate he is with us. Now, we're not told exactly why oil is to be used, but there are many possible reasons for it, each of which tells us something quite significant, so let me run through those quickly. First, oil in biblical times and in many ancient cultures was believed to have medicinal properties. In fact, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when Jesus tells that story, he talks about how the Good Samaritan bound the injured man's wounds with oil. And so, first, God may be telling us here, please use any available medical means that he has made available to us through his greater grace. It's not a lack of faith to do that. You do whatever your culture, your society has, has developed in the terms of medicine to get help when you're sick. Second, oil was often used in the Old Testament to set a person apart as special before the Lord, before they were going to go do a certain task for God they would typically be anointed with oil and set apart as special. And brothers and sisters, there is no time when we are more special in the sight of our loving, caring, personal, relational, intimate God than when we are suffering from sickness and there's nothing that we can do about it. And we're just suffering. He sees us as special. And so anointing with oil reminds us of that. Thirdly, Oil was often used in the Holy Spirit to picture the presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, when Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins, five have oil in their lamps. That's the picture of five who are true, true believers that have the Holy Spirit in them. And so when we pray for a healing for the sick, if there's going to be any healing miraculously that God does that goes on, it's going to come from the person of the Trinity who resides within every believer, and he is the Holy Spirit. But keeping in mind this idea of the Holy Spirit signifying, excuse me, of oil signifying the Holy Spirit, there's something else about oil that sort of transcended all cultures because we still use it today for these purposes. And oil generally is used to soothe or to comfort a wound or a rash or just your dry skin, whatever it might be. And that reminds us that the Holy Spirit is our comforter as well. So he's there not only to heal but to comfort us as we go through that time of suffering. And then we have verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. You know, most times when Jesus healed in the New Testament, uh, he used it to teach us about some deeper spiritual thing. It wasn't just about a healing. He was also teaching some spiritual things. And James is doing the same thing here, because now we are told of some very important spiritual things. First, it says that the prayer of faith will save us, for you see, a far greater need of ours than just physical healing is spiritual healing, because we are all born into a seriously, spiritually sick condition which is what we might modernly call being born S-I-N, positive. And when we, by faith, pray for Jesus to save us, he will always do so. You can bank on that. In John 6, 37, he said, Whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. You see, everyone that Jesus healed in the Bible eventually still died, and the same is true for us if we happen to get healed today when the elders pray for us, unless the Lord returns first. But more important than any physical healing from a sickness, which Jesus may or may not choose to do, 
is the spiritual healing from sin and judgment that he promises to always do when a person asks for it in faith. Because on that first Good Friday, he fully, finally, and forever paid for all of our sin and the judgment we deserve for it so that when we die, we can go into eternal glory in heaven with him, not to eternal damnation in a place the Bible calls hell. And as ones who are saved, as this verse reminds us, Jesus will also raise us up and give us resurrection bodies so that we can live forever in that place where there is no more pain, there are no more tears, then there's no more suffering. You know, I'll never forget the words of one elderly man that a group of us elders prayed with once and anointed with oil. He was in the terminal stages of cancer, and in fact, our prayer for healing, for physical healing, did not work. He died about a week later. But after I explained the meaning to him of these verses, as I have with you tonight, I then asked him, I said, now knowing that, do you want us to pray over you? And he said this. He said, look, the way I see it, this is a win-win situation for me. You guys pray for me, and either I get healed and I get to enjoy Jesus longer here on this earth, or I don't get healed and I get to go home to be with him forever. That's the heart attitude we should have as we come to the Lord and ask for these healings. So as Isaiah 53 says, speaking of this day, this time that we're talking about tonight, by his wounds or by his stripes, we are healed. And the ultimate healing is one day to go home to be with him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you that this day is called good. Lord, it is so good because you did what we could never do and that is pay for our sins, Lord. We want to trust in that fully and completely in your work on the cross. And yet, Lord, we know that Good Friday is not the end of the story. It's just the beginning, that um, Sunday morning we're going to be back here to celebrate what you also did for us, that you resurrected from the grave, Lord. You defeated death. You destroyed death, Lord, and you gave us new life in yourself. And so we pray that each person here would experience that tonight, Lord, and know the forgiveness of their sins and know the power of your resurrection to new life. And we thank you and praise you for who you are and all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. James five sixteen through 18. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word, Father, particularly as we contemplate the meaning of these words on this Good Friday. Father, I pray that you'd open up our hearts to your truths um, and the reality of uh, the price that Jesus paid, and that that price paid means that we can be forgiven with a simple confession of our sins, Father. May we take that to heart. May we have the humility to do so. And then just as important to uh, turn from those sins and live in righteousness for your sake. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Good Friday um, is our perpetual reminder 
of our need to repent. <laughs> it is our sins that took Jesus to the cross. Um, and repentance is defined for us well in Proverbs 28.13. It tells us this and gives us a good idea of what it means to repent, a word we use often. Um, and, you know, there's a, a famous pastor named Ironside who wrote a book on repent. He called it, Unless Ye Repent, because he said it's a word that's so often used in Christian circles and so little understood. But Proverbs 28 gives us this beautiful picture. 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And so we note that there are two parts to repentance. The first part is confession, and then secondly, an abandonment or a turning away from the things that we call sin. And James 5, 16 to 18 is calling on us to hold each of us accountable to do both these things. As Rob has already discussed, you know, the, James in that first few verses was talking about the physical healing, but now he's going to be turning to the reality that sin is a spiritual sickness for which we also need healing. And though God cares for our physical needs and in His mercy and he, in, in His kindness, He will heal our bodies and in many ways He's given us bodies that heal themselves for so many things, His primary concern and the very reason for which Jesus came is with the state of our soul. And we encounter this early in Jesus' ministry. In all three of the synop synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read that while Jesus is teaching, a group of men bring their friend on a sheet who is paralyzed. And Mark and Luke tell us that they're so desperate to get to Jesus that they actually cut a hole in the roof to let this man down. And having lowered their friend in front of Jesus, the Bible records Jesus' reaction. And I'm going to read it from Matthew. But it says, having lowered their friend in front of Jesus, it says this, when Jesus saw their faith, faith for what? Apparently, faith for more than just to have their friend healed. Because look at Jesus' response to the faith that he saw in these men. He said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, needless to say, this caused an incredible stir. But what's interesting is it didn't cause an incredible stir from the men who brought the paralytic, but rather from the religious leaders. You see, they began to say to one another, this man blasphemes for who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus responds and says, bingo. <laughs> well, not quite. <laughs> But essentially, <laughs> that is what Jesus said. He says, why do you harbor evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know the Son of God has authority, Son of Man, he says, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. And so Jesus eventually heals the man's body. But note that Jesus was not responding to the need or to the request of the man or his friends. They all seemed to have sensed that something bigger was going on. And in the midst of all this, they are silent. Instead, Jesus is responding to the scribes and the religious leaders. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Now, 
this is not meant by Jesus to be a rhetorical question. Jesus has actually engaged these religious leaders in a deep theological debate that only they would have truly appreciated. Because to an everyday observer, it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why is that? Because no one can test it. <laughs> it's not observable. But to call out in the midst of this group, pick up your bed mat and walk to a paralytic, which everybody knew was paralyzed, is to risk that it doesn't happen. And so, in many ways, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But theologically, the scribes would have understood better than anybody there that even though the words may be easier to say, the power to heal a man who's paralyzed was way easier than the authority to forgive. And that's what got them, has got them up in arms because only God can forgive because we only sin against God. And Jesus has pointedly set this up so that he can appeal to the scribes in a way that they would understand. He's saying to them, I want you to know that the power by which I'm going to heal this man is the same authority by which I can forgive his sins and yours. I love what he says so that you may know the Son of Man. And we could stop there, because that's the gospel. <laughs> that we might know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He goes ahead and he heals the man. It is in this guise that James tells us to confess our sins to one another and to pray collectively for healing. Note that here, unlike... When Rob was talking, we're, we were called to come before the elders and have the elder pray for the sick person. That's not what the Bible's talking about here. This is a collective prayer. This isn't a one-directional prayer. We are to pray for one another. We are told in verse 16 to confess to one another, and then each of us take time to pray for one another. Think about what this requires. It requires a tremendous amount of trust amongst our fellowship and a heart of humility and grace. We are not to come into these prayer circles and condemn, condemn one another or to judge one another and especially not to compare ourselves to one another. Well, look at me. I'm just a liar compared to this adulterous drunk over here. I mean, I'm not so bad after all. <laughs> That's not what these... That's not what James is calling us to do. And so it takes a tremendous amount of trust and a tremendous relationship amongst the body to be able to do what we are being called to do here. Now, that none of this is to negate that there are consequences for our sins, but it is to encourage us that if God has forgiven us, we need to be able to forgive one another. We shouldn't be putting a shadow over someone because we know of some sin they've committed. They are new creations in Christ, the same as you. And the only difference is their sin is public and yours is hidden. <laughs> we are all sinners. And we are to come together in confession because the promise is that we will be forgiven. Because note what James says immediately after he tells us to confess our sins. In the next breath, as we confess and pray for one another, as take it to the Lord, look what he says. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Who is this righteous person? <laughs> We've all just confessed our sins. 
How is it that any of us is righteous? Well, the first thing to note, and Rob wanted to make sure I pointed this out, what he's not talking about is the elder in the verse above. We are no more righteous than anybody else in this church. We are simply like everyone, sinners saved by grace. Who is he talking about? All of us. We are all righteous because of what Jesus did on that cross 2,000 years ago, more than 2,000 years ago now on this night. That is what brings us righteousness. And James assures us that the prayer for spiritual healing is one of those prayers that we can all guarantee will be answered. He says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let me ask you, church, which is easier to say? Don't let it rain for three years? <laughs> or, Father, forgive me? It's one of those questions like Jesus. <laughs> the words may be easier, but the price of that forgiveness was our Lord on the cross. That's what it cost us. But I can tell you that even though I can't promise you if you're praying for the rain to stop, and I know some of you are, <laughs> but I can promise you that the prayer of forgiveness will be heard. John tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can take that to the bank because Jesus has already paid the price for those sins and that's why it is just for God to forgive us. He simply asks for our confession. You know, forgiveness is part of what happens in repentance. But the other thing that this verse tells us is that to understand is that the prayer of confession for forgiveness is partially for our sake, because sin is a sickness. It makes us sick, and we need to know that. It causes so much of the depression we see in this world. It messes with our mental health, our emotional health. It causes physical ailments. We all know what stress and anxiety can do to a human being. It can break us down. Sin is a sickness. And so God promises not just to forgive us, but to heal us and strengthen us that we might be in a shining example out there in the world. Amen. Let's do what the Bible tells us to do. <laughs> Let's pray for one another. Confess in your hearts. I'm going to confess in my heart and openly that I too am a sinner, knowing that God will forgive us. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the promises that we see in this scripture. Lord God, the consequences of sin are so dire, we don't even like to admit them. We all know that it's a shameful thing to admit what we have done, Father. Beginning with the fact that we have not loved you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. With the reality that, uh, as we studied in James, that our tongue is a fire that curses our fellow brother. That we gossip and lie. Father, that we steal and cheat. Father, that we seek all these things. Because out of fear, out of lust, out of desires that often control us. Because sin is a sickness. Father, we confess to you now, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us. Father, we thank you for that forgiveness and pray, Lord God, that by the power of your spirit, you would give us the strength to turn away from these things and walk in the righteousness that you've already given us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
We have our final verses tonight, the final verses of what I believe has been a very transformative book for our church, the book of James. And James writes to us as the children of God. And in writing to the children of God, he wants to give one final charge. And we find that charge in verse 19 and 20. So let's read these last verses of the book of James. It says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Just notice that James calls us brothers, brothers and sisters, one final time in this book, because that is what we are. We are the beloved children of God. We have been called brothers and sisters because Jesus, the Son of God, has adopted us into the family family of God, having reconciled us to the Father who is God. We're the family of God. Isn't that right? And so together here, we're brothers and sisters. And, you know, we've called this a family service tonight because we have invited the children of the church to join us. If you're a kid in here tonight, can you give a little whoop, whoop? I love it. And I just want to say to any of the little ones in here, any of you kids, that if you love Jesus, and if you give the early years of your life to following Jesus, I tell you, you will not regret it as you continue to walk with Jesus all your life. Amen. And I'm going to tell you something. There's a great life to be lived with God. And so if you're young here, just plan to live out all your days with Jesus. Because there's some of us here who haven't done that, right? But the beautiful thing is whether you came to Jesus as a child or whether you came to Jesus as an older man or older woman, the truth still stands that believers of all ages are called the children of God. In fact, Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to become like humble, uh, expectant needing children, right? We need our father. We need our brother in Jesus. And so that is the beautiful thing about the fact that we've been called children. Now, James understands something that I I believe that we all have experienced either personally or we have seen it in the people that are close to us is that children wander. My children seem to wander in parking lots. I don't know why. (laughs) Children wander. They wander from their parents. And and, and another way that Jesus refers to our relationship with him is that we are like sheep and he is a shepherd. Do you know anything about sheep? They're really dumb animals. (laughs) They wander. In fact, I just recently saw a video of this sheep that was in a trench and the shepherd came along and pulled the sheep out of the trench and the thing went running and ran right back into the hole. Right? And, And this is us. We often find ourselves in pits, and Jesus will save us, and where do we go? We go right back to the pit. We find ourselves time and time again wandering, straying from the fold of Jesus. And so writing to the children of God, to the sheep of his fold, James says this, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth 
and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Notice that he says, if anyone, which means it's quite possible for all of us to wander. Perhaps you've found yourself wandering. You, at one point, found yourself gathering among the brothers and sisters in Christ. You know the voice of your shepherd, and yet that sound has seemed to be more distant than it was before. You've wandered from your brother. You've wandered from your shepherd, Jesus. And in Psalm chapter 42, verse 4, the psalmist is spiritually depressed perhaps because he had been wandering from his shepherd. And look at what he says. He says, my heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of great celebration. And yet there's this wandering. Notice how he says, I remember how it used to be. But now he's at a spiritual low in his life. And is this describing your current situation, friend? Or is this describing the current situation of someone that is dear to you? See, when a person wanders, what do they wander from? James says they wander from the truth. Now, to anyone here tonight, I just want to say, if, if you've been wandering... But on this holy weekend, you decided to come to church because you felt, you know, it's Good Friday. It's Easter weekend. You should go to church. You should give the tip of the hat to Jesus. But you found yourself wandering, but you've made yourself here to the house of the Lord today. I just want to say to you, the Lord has invited you into his house today with mercy and grace. He's so happy you're here. The Lord is glad that you're here, and so is your church family. Welcome back home. I think every Christian at some point in their life has experienced and understands what it's like to wander. Psalm chapter 53 verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We also know that line from that great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And again, what are we wandering from? James says, if anyone wanders from the truth. And what is truth? Well, Pontius Pilate asked that question as he was sentencing Jesus to death. He said, what is truth? as he stared Jesus in the face and said, crucify him. Truth is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When anyone wanders from the truth, do you know what they're wandering from? They're wandering from Jesus, the shepherd of our souls. Now, if anyone is in that state of wanting, there's a responsibility that the family of God has. And again, James has been dealing with family business in this letter, hasn't he? In my family, it's important that we look out for one another. 
It's important as a father that I look out for my children, but it's also important that my children look out for one another. I have a one-and-a-half-year-old who likes to put things in his mouth that don't belong there. And I have a nine-year-old daughter who's a little bit more mature and a little bit more understanding who I hope will step in and stop him if he's eating something that's going to make him sick. And in the same way, if anyone among us, anyone among the brothers and sisters in Christ wanders away, we have a responsibility, church. Jesus isn't coming back yet. Don't worry, guys. (laughs) I love it. We are family, aren't we? We're family. And there needs to be, when someone wanders, there needs to be someone to bring the wanderer back. Someone needs to go after the wanderer. Is that someone you? Oh, no, no, not me, pastor. That's you. That's your job, right? And it is my job. I'm a pastor, Pastor means shepherd. I'm called to shepherd the flock of God. And if you go wandering, I'm coming after you. (laughs) But it's not just the job of the pastor. It's the job of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Because guess what? There's too many of you. I can't go after every one of you if you wander. But we could all go after one another if we wander. Someone has to do it. And maybe it's you. Maybe it's me. And here's the other truth. Anyone can wander, even me. If I wander, will you come after me? Thank you. (laughs) I love that. It wasn't a rhetorical question. (laughs) If anyone wanders, someone has to go and get them. Now, have you wandered? Have, have, you, have you known a believer that you used to sit next to week after week in church and they've wandered? Someone has to go after them. And so if we know any one of them, perhaps it may be you. Now, this is not optional, by the way. We tend to think that this stuff is just going to, you know, kind of work itself out. Sure, the, the wanderer may find their way back home on their own, and we might quote Tolkien that not all who wander are lost, and this and that, and, you know, but, but somebody's got to do it. This isn't optional. It says, brothers and sisters, if anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know a really important promise. James wants us to know something, something very important to know, so important that it's the closing words of this book. James could have stopped on any one of these bold promises or truths that have been proclaimed all throughout the book of James. But he says, my brothers, if anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So when it says, whoever, again, this might be you, or it might be me. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, it could be any one of us. As sinners, as as Pastor Ben Kai so beautifully put it, as as sinners, every last, last one of us, even all the pastors who've preached tonight, Everyone is capable of wandering. And if we do, we need to be brought back. How do you bring back a sinner from their wandering? 
I don't know, when you figure out, come and tell me. Because <laughs> I've known a lot of wandering sinners, and I've been one of them. And there have been people that God has put on my heart, people that I used to walk in the congregation of the Lord with who no longer gathered with me, and, and I was like, where are they? And God put it on my heart that I would have to go after one. One time when I was a youth pastor, there was this one student, and he, you know, was doing high school stuff. And he was part of the student leadership of the youth ministry, and I just decided I got to go get this kid. And so I met up with him one day at a coffee shop, and I'm talking to him, and, and I, I printed out a bunch of scriptures. I just basically Google searched backsliding and printed all the verses and then went and walked through every single one of them with him. And he wasn't really having it, and it, I probably wasn't doing it very gracefully. But then there was this one kid that he, a classmate of his, who came and sat down with us, and, and we were talking and everything, and I think the kid was stoned out of his mind. Sorry, sorry there's kids in here. And, and anyways, um, and, and I was like, you know, I was like, hey, did you, know, did you know this guy here? Did you know he's a Christian? And he looks across the table, he's like, you're a Christian? And that's what got him. He's like, oh, I am a Christian. But by the way that I've been living, my friend doesn't even know I'm a Christian. And that's what brought him back. You know, I was talking with a really good friend of mine recently, and he was just saying some really ridiculous stuff, things that weren't true talking about the state of his, his marriage and just really going off. And I was trying to walk through the scriptures with, I was trying to encourage him. I was trying to rebuke him even, but nothing was working. And I was just like, what's the deal with this? And it's like one of my best friends. And he came to visit me a few months later and he's like, man, I really forgot the power of repentance. Repentance is so powerful and I forgot it. I forgot the power of confession. And you know, he, he called me on this. He's like you're, like, you're like my best friend. You should have punched me in the face three months ago. <laughs> like really, you should have taken me out in the street and just brawled me. I was like, kind of wanted to, honestly. <laughs> so how do you go after wandering sinners? Trust the Spirit's leading. Be humble. Consider your own sin. Take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. Come at it trusting that God is going to give you the words to speak, that he's going to give you the grace to pour out, that he's going to give you the mercy that you have received that you can show others. Just pray, ask God to help you, but we have to go after people. See, sometimes we cannot determine the results, but if we never say anything, or if we never do anything, guess what? There's not even going to be a result. Because look, I've gone after people, and it's gone wonderful. They've come back to the Lord. They've come back into fellowship. It's awesome. Praise God. Saved a sinner from their wandering, covered a multitude of sins, saved their soul from death. And other times, I've gotten cursed out. I, I, I've gotten just hammered, feeling awful, feeling... I don't like confrontation any more than the next person. But we got to do this, church. We're family, right? 
This is what brothers and sisters do for one another. Who's not here tonight that should be here? And you perhaps should have been the one to invite them. See, when we bring back sinners from their wandering, this is what happens. It says we will save their soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Those sound like pretty big things. And that's what Jesus has done for us on Good Friday. He has saved our soul from death. He has covered a multitude of sins when he died on the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was anticipating his death on the cross, he says, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. He said, Father, if there be any other way to go about this, let it, let's do that. But, but if it's this, he said, let this cup pass from me, yet, but not my will be done, your will be done. Because Jesus understood something. He understood the iniquity of us all that was going to be laid upon him. Because just like that verse in Isaiah said, every last one of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one, every last one of us have had souls that have wandered off into death. Have had a multitude of sins that we have stacked up. Each one of us, the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And so, brother, sister, if today God gave me the grace to call you back from your wandering, come. Come to the tables of the Lord tonight. Receive communion. Take the bread and dip it in the cup and believe of what Jesus has done for you when he gave his body to, to save your soul from death, when he gave his blood to cover a multitude of sins. Come to the table of the Lord today if you have wandered and realize you can come to the table of God. You can come and God invites you back in. This is his house and he has prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. The tables are ready for you to come and to confess and to draw near to God. You must humble yourself. We've all gone astray. We've all wandered in some way or another. But for those of us who are here, I, I believe we're here because we want to be close to Jesus. We're going to be here on Sunday morning at Easter because we believe that Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And look, if, if someone among us has wandered, it's on you and it's on me to invite them and to bring them to Easter. See, do you know how many wanderers find their way back on Easter weekend? Wow. 800 seats. 800 seats. That's because we know that there's wanderers and we're saving a seat for them. Who among us has wandered from the truth if you're here, you're someone, bring them back. Because whoever brings back a sinner from their wanderings will save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. We believe, Lord, that we all, like sheep, 
have gone astray. But you, our good shepherd, you have laid down your life for your sheep. You are the lamb who was slain. Your blood covers a multitude of sins. Your death saves our souls from death. And for those of us here who know that truth, we want to go after those who have wandered. Give us the conviction and the grace to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a lot to respond to, don't we? And as we close in some worship, you could respond to any one or all of the things that you have heard tonight. You heard from Pastor Rob that you can come and you can be anointed with oil. If, if anyone among us is sick, come. We will anoint you with oil tonight and pray for your healing. I've already today anointed two people with oil to pray for healing. Pray for my wife. She's sick tonight. She's not here. And I anointed with her, her with oil in the kitchen, and she, anyways, I'll, see, I'll spare the thing. She, she's, she's home still recovering, but we prayed for her. About half of our team here, half of our staff, staff is sick right now. You know why? Because the enemy knows that we're going to pray for healing. The enemy knows that we're going to proclaim that Jesus has destroyed death. So if, if you need healing, come get healing. Come get prayer. If you need to confess your sins um, one to another, there's a lot of one to another's here tonight. Whoever you're with, whoever came with, you can confess your sin to them. If you didn't come with anyone, you can come here. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. You can come confess your sins. Whoever conceals their sins, don't do that. Bring it to the light. Confess it. You'll feel so good walking out of here tonight. If anyone has someone that they want to pray for who's wandered, come pray for them. If, if anyone wants to pray for boldness, that you would be the one to go after them, come pray. There's many things we could respond to in prayer, but for sure, come forward right now and receive from the table of the Lord. Receive communion because Jesus on Good Friday gave his body and his blood for us. Amen. Let's all rise. And let's all respond to the things we've heard tonight.